I would invite you this morning to take your Bibles and turn to Ezekiel. Ezekiel chapter 16. We are going to be in Ezekiel 16 this morning rather than in Matthew where we've been for many months in our verse-by-verse exposition of Matthew's Gospel. I want to move away from that exposition yet another day so that we can better grasp God's purposes in the recent disaster of Hurricane Katrina. Certainly that you will not hear any Christian voice in the media and many times it's even hard to understand a biblical perspective from many so-called religious experts. So I would like to address this again this morning. Last week I spoke to you of God's judgment in Katrina as God would have us behold his glory and his wrath and his mercy. But today I want to speak to you of God's compassion. So I have entitled my sermon this morning, Katrina and the Love of God. Last week we were reminded that God has decreed all things according to his purposes, that he orchestrates all things for our good and for his glory. And therefore, we understand that our sovereign God ordained even that storm to accomplish his purposes, ultimately glorifying himself in ways that we can't fully comprehend, but in some ways that we can. We learned last week that he brings both blessing and calamity. Amos 3, 6 says that if a calamity occurs in a city, has not the Lord done it? And the answer is obviously yes. Last week, we were reminded that God brings judgment upon the wicked from time to time to get our attention. He calls people to repentance through great catastrophes. And indeed, God's saving purposes are often concealed in calamity. We noted last week with great specificity that that Gulf Coast region, especially New Orleans, is a very wicked part of the country symbolic of much of America. And again, we were reminded that Scripture is full of warnings, that judgment is coming. We are reminded all through Scripture that, that life is, is full of, of warnings where God is indicating to us all that he is in control of his universe, not man. And from time to time, he brings catastrophic events into our world to remind us that he is in control And that life is short and that we need to be ready to stand in his presence blameless with great joy. And the only way we can do that is through Christ Jesus. But there are times when his long suffering has been spurned long enough and he pours out his judgment upon those who would scoff at his holiness and reject his merciful plan of redemption. And many times when his judgment is poured out upon the earth. We see innocent people killed. Many of them would be even his own children. And many others are his enemies. But certainly for all who are left behind, even in a storm like Katrina, and certainly for those who are left behind and refuse to repent and place their faith in Christ, Katrina is merely a foretaste of what is to come. We are reminded in Hebrews 9:27 that it is appointed for men to die once, but after this, the judgment. But this morning, my heart is heavy. I spent several days with Mike Rutherford and the other people from Gulfport that were here down in the Gulfport area. I had a chance to see firsthand the devastation. I had a chance to talk with people who have lost everything had a chance to talk with a number who have lost everything and they do not have Christ. And my, what a radical difference to talk with those who have lost everything, but they have Christ. It's as plain as night and day. But my heart was struck with just the love of God, even in the midst of indescribable destruction and the pathos of human suffering. And so today I want us to better understand the love of God, even in the midst of such a disaster. And I think it is even fitting that we do this today on this 11th day of September, 
the fourth anniversary of another great tragedy when the terrorists struck our country and when they destroyed, as I understand, about 16 acres of our country. You compare that to 90,000 square miles of devastation in the Gulf Coast and you see the difference in devastation. And perhaps they believe that the number of dead will exceed that of 9-11. But today we want to answer the question that many times people will ask. And I heard this some when I was in Gulfport. How can a loving God allow something like this to happen? And for those who really understand the truth, they would also have to ask, how could a loving God even ordain such a thing to happen? Because, again, if you understand the sovereignty of God, you will understand that this storm did not catch God by surprise. But indeed, he decreed it to happen for his glorious purposes. And so in order to understand this, I thought we would go this morning to. Ezekiel's prophecy in Ezekiel chapter 16. But before we examine this text, we must understand the love of God. And I fear that most people don't really understand this concept. Now, for a few minutes here, if you can bear with me, I want to address this issue of the love of God from a biblical theological perspective. So we have this as a framework. And certainly this will not be an exhaustive study of this. We don't have time for that this morning. I just want to hit some theological highlights so that you can understand the love of God, especially in light of Katrina and other calamities similar to it. Sadly, most people think that God loves everyone the same. And certainly that appeals to our flesh. And even modern evangelicalism has created God in their image, a God that kind of winks at sin and loves everybody. Doesn't matter what you believe. Everybody's going to go to heaven is the thought. And so now we have a God that is more concerned about our happiness than our holiness. And so, as I've said before, we see many people today claiming to worship Jesus, but really it's a smiley face type of Jesus that bears no resemblance to the ineffable tetragrammaton of Scripture. The two wondrous to utter from the lips four letters, Yahweh, the Lord, our God. So to give you a theological summary of God's love, before we look at Ezekiel 16, let me just give you two real basic presuppositions, and then I'll elaborate on them for just a moment. First of all, as we look at the Bible, we see that God's love is unlimited in its breadth, but it's limited in its depth. Let me say that again. God's love is unlimited in breadth, but limited in its depth. And then secondly, God has one ultimate purpose in his love, and that is to glorify himself. So we will see that God's love is always ultimately directed towards his glory. Now, what do I mean by God's love is unlimited in breadth? Well, we see that, for example, in Titus 3, 4, God has a love for all mankind. John 3:16 it says that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. So there is that love of God which is general. It is universal. It is indiscriminate. It is unconditional. It is unlimited in its breadth. It extends to all people, even the enemies of God. And there are many other passages that would help us understand this. We see, for example, the breadth of God's love and his what was commonly called his common grace, where his loving kindnesses are poured out indiscriminately upon all mankind. As sovereign creator and sustainer of the universe, he he provides rain, he provides seed, he provides harvest, he provides life to all people. We also see the breadth of his love and his compassion. We see that Jesus, for example, had compassion upon those even that rejected him. This is a love of pity, a love that would cause him to weep over those that would spurn his love. We see that God, for example, takes no pleasure even in his damnation of sinners. We see the breadth of his love and his merciful warnings as Jesus would come to people who are dying in their sins and cry out to them, unless you repent, you will perish. We also see the breadth of his love manifest, manifested in the proclamation of the gospel, where, 
where God offers forgiveness of sin and invites sinners to be reconciled to himself. So to that extent, his love is unlimited in its breadth. It is a universal love, but one that is only, now catch this, temporal. It is limited to time. This is not a love that is eternal because it is not a saving love. There is a difference. So to that end, he delivers even non-believers from instant judgment in this life because the wages of sin is death. But his love is limited to their life in this world only. But although his love is unlimited in breadth, in other words, its scope, it is, as I say, limited in its depth. In other words, the full expression of God's love is reserved for only a select few. Those who reject his love by rejecting Christ will eventually become his enemies. But the depths of his love is lavished only upon those who were united to him in faith, the recipients of his grace. Those he called his own, those become joint heirs with Jesus. The Bible teaches that his patience has its limits. There comes a time when his love for sinners turns to wrath. It turns to a holy hatred. In fact, in Psalm 5, 5, it says that he hates all who do iniquity. In Psalm 11, 5, we read that the Lord tests the righteous and the wicked and the one who loves violence. His soul hates. It is with this in mind that the Apostle Paul stated in 1 Corinthians 16, 22, if any man love not the Lord Jesus Christ, let him be accursed. Friends, here's when love turns to hate, but not so for those whom he set his love upon in eternity past. Those the Bible calls his chosen ones, his elect, the ones of whom he said in John 13, 1 at the last Passover meal, when he was contemplating his sacrifice, these are the ones having loved his own, he says, who were in the world. He loved them to the end. I tell us in the original language, it means unto utter completion. He loves his own with an infinite love. He lavishes upon his own, upon his elect, upon his chosen ones, all that he is capable of loving. He loves us as his own children. He even loves us as his own son, the Lord Jesus. This is a love to the end, a love that will never turn to hate, an infinite, eternal love, an unconditional love, therefore, that will never wane. So the depth of his love is limited to a select few. And also, that second proposition is true, that God has one ultimate purpose in his love, and that is to glorify himself. You see, God's love is ultimately directed at his glory. He saves sinners, for example, to glorify himself. And I want you to understand biblically that he is not obligated to love everybody the same. And many people cannot stand that theological truth. But he is not obligated to love everybody the same. God will love in a way that puts all of his attributes on display. And thus, and thus manifest all of his glory, because all that he does, he does for his namesake, including how he loves and whom he loves. In Psalm 31, for example, the psalmist cries out for God to rescue him very quickly to be his refuge and his strength. And then he quickly adds in verse three, for thy namesake, thou wilt lead me and guide me. Friends, we see biblically that very seldom does does God do what we think he maybe should have done? And even in our life, we think, my, why would he love and shower blessing upon this person and not this person? And again, we can't understand the mind of God. The secret things belong to the Lord. Because we have no idea of the infinite ways that he is orchestrating his universe to glorify himself. But all that he does is to glorify himself. Even in his judgment, when he judges, even in his wrath, that gives him an opportunity to manifest his mercy, to manifest his grace, not to mention display his holiness. In Deuteronomy 32, 39, he says, there is no God besides me. It is I who put to death and give life. I have wounded and it is I who heal. 
And later on in verse 41, he says, my hand takes hold on justice. I will render vengeance on my adversaries and I will repay those who hate me. So we learn as Christians to yield to his glorious purposes, even purposes that we cannot fathom. And we echo the words of the psalmist in Psalm 79, 9. Many times when we would say, help us, O God of our salvation. Why? For the glory of thy name. So God's love is unlimited in breadth, but limited in its depth. And it's God has one ultimate purpose in his love, and that is to glorify himself. Now, with that brief theological overview, we return to the question at hand. And that is, how can a loving God not just allow such a thing as Katrina, but ordain it to happen? And here's where we come to Ezekiel 16. Now, before we look at the text, let me give you the context here. This is a national illustration of God's love upon sinful Israel. And by the way, the wickedness of Israel, some 2,600 or 2,600 years ago, is... uh, A wickedness that really parallels the United States of America. If you study the reasons why God judged them, you will see that the very identical things exist here in our country. And therefore, the same spiritual principles will apply. This is a profound example of how God in his uninfluenced decrees sovereignly sets his love upon those whom he chooses and saves them despite their wickedness. And often he does so in the midst of catastrophic judgments. And this will be the case here as he judges his people and prepares them for the Babylonian hordes that will soon come upon them. And all along now, we must remember a very important principle that his saving purposes are often concealed in calamity. Now, I give you a warning This chapter, first of all, it's the longest chapter in Ezekiel, and I'll not be able to go through every single verse, but we'll be able to get through the gist of it, if you will. But this is a very explicit chapter. It describes in vivid and sordid detail the unspeakable wickedness of Israel. It is so graphic, in fact, and it is so indicting that the early rabbis would not permit this chapter to be read publicly. It was a humiliating chapter. But in reality, this is a marvelous illustration of God's love set upon those he has chosen to save in eternity past. Now, to help us understand the profundity of this text, we will see an interplay of three spiritual realities that will inevitably coexist together. And we see this interplay even in Katrina. And those three realities are simply... These number one, we will see the tragedy of self-deception. Number two, the terror of divine judgment. And number three, the triumph of sovereign love. And as we examine this historical account of both God's judgment and love, we will quickly see how the unchanging character of God impacts the world, even in which we live, especially in light of God's judgment upon America in the recent catastrophe of Katrina. So Ezekiel now is prophesying of an impending catastrophe of divine judgment, far worse than Katrina, with the barbaric Babylonians that will come down to conquer them. By the way, these would have um, have been the ancient Iraqis of today. And again, we will here see not just the judgment, but the love of God. Now, the central themes throughout Ezekiel's prophecy are always God's holiness, God's sovereignty, and the glory of the Lord. And this book is filled with prophecies concerning not just the ruin of Jerusalem and, and of Israel, but also the retribution of the, of the nearby nations. And it even gives us a glimpse of God's future restoration of Israel in his second coming. It's an amazing book with numerous picturesque scenes illustrating These spiritual principles. Now, having said all of that, let's focus on the text itself, beginning in verse one of Ezekiel 16. Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, son of man, make known to Jerusalem her abominations and say, thus says the Lord God to Jerusalem. 
Your origin and your birth are from the land of the Canaanite. Your father was an Amorite and your mother a Hittite. Now, you must understand Jerusalem was to be the city of God. Jerusalem was the place of God's temple. It was his holy city. And within the temple was the sanctuary of the glory of God. The Shekinah glory that hovered over the mercy seat between the cherubim. And Jerusalem here symbolized the whole nation of Israel. And now it is a place of abominations because the idolatrous worship of the people was now pervasive. It was ubiquitous. They were worshiping pagan gods. So the word of the Lord comes to Ezekiel to confront them. Confront them, first of all, with, as I say, number one, the tragedy of self-deception. You see, folks, these people were convinced of their godliness they thought, well, my, we're, the, we're God's chosen people. We deserve so much more than other people. We have a meritorious standing before God because we keep his laws. We've seen what God has done in our past. And so we are special before the Lord. But they had deceived themselves into believing a lie. False prophets had also deceived them into believing that somehow their beloved Jerusalem would be spared By the Babylonian invaders. So God now is reminding them of their roots. He's telling them, people, I called you out of wicked paganism. Out of the land of the Canaanites. But now you're once again embracing their idols. And friends, I think of the tragedy of self-deception. You know, no one consciously says, you know what? I am going to deliberately and purposely offend a holy God. I'm going to shake my fist in his face. I'm going to spit in his face and I'm going to worship other gods so that he will pour out his wrath upon me. I'm going to deliberately provoke his wrath and provoke his jealousy. Nobody deliberately does that. But in self-deception, that is very often the case. You see, whenever people try to mix other religions With true Christianity, whenever you try to blend error with truth, whenever you come along and you water down the truth so it can be accepted, whenever you consider tolerance of false doctrine to be a virtue, God calls that an abomination. This is precisely what they were doing in that day. And I would submit to you, this is precisely what even Christendom is doing in America today. We see it all over the place. By the way, it is inherent. I should say it's an inherent flaw, even in democracy, to welcome any and all religions. And I understand that because democracy is probably the best thing next to a theocracy. And we can't have that until the millennial kingdom comes, until Christ comes. But when you bring every conceivable religion in amongst each other. And you come to a point where now we've got to be tolerant of all these things, even religions that are set upon our destruction. You begin to see how that all religions kind of become one. And certainly anyone that says that Jesus said that I am the way, the truth and the life. No man comes to the father, but through me. Well, we can't have that. That person is a narrow minded religious fanatic. And so we see the same type of religious syncretism, this ecumenism occurring even in our land today. And isn't it fascinating, by the way, how history always repeats itself? The reason why history repeats itself is because sin will always repeat itself. And as long as there's sin, you're going to see the same cycles of idolatry and judgment occur. Notice in verses four through six, back to the text, and here's where he, he's going to remind them of his unflu- uninfluenced decision to set his love upon them through absolutely no merit of their own. Notice what he says. As for your birth, on the day you were born, your navel cord was not cut, nor were you washed with water for cleansing. You were not rubbed with salt or even wrapped in cloths. No, I looked upon or looked with pity upon you to do any of these things for you to have compassion on you. 
Rather, you were thrown out into the open field for you were abhorred on the day you were born. When I passed by you and saw you squirming in your blood, I said to you while you were in your blood, live. I said to you while you were in your blood, live. Why did he say this? Why did he see this this rejected group of pagan people squirming in their own blood, so to speak? Why would he tell them to live? Folks, the answer is real simple. Because he in his sovereignty determined to do so. Remember, he doesn't love all people the same. Because he chooses to do whatever he wishes and whatever he wishes to do, whatever he chooses to do is perfectly holy and it is perfectly just. Now, you must understand there were no abortions in those days. So if you had a child that you did not want, you just simply discarded that child. What they would do is they would throw it out into the field and there were many cur dogs around the area and the animals would very quickly devour the infant And also, this was a very common practice among prostitutes of that day. Certainly, they could not conduct business and care for children at the same time. And this is probably a picture of of their days of slavery in Egypt when they were a defenseless outcast. They were unwanted. They were unloved. But even during that great time of suffering, God's love was at work. His compassion was at work. You know, it grieved my heart when I was in Gulfport to talk with some of the evacuees apart that that do not know Christ. And I've heard this even on television. So many of them feel as though God has abandoned them and they feel as though all is lost, that somehow I'm forsaken and I'm just left here to die. But dear friends, the good news is that is not so for those who place their faith in the living Christ. His mercy and His grace is readily available to all who trust in Christ as Savior and Lord. And this is why we have such a wonderful opportunity to evangelize people who are confronted with the reality of having nothing. Well, this is how God saw Israel. A picture of all He chooses to love. You know, nothing can possibly be more helpless than a newborn infant thrown into a field. As I think about that, it's just just a horrific scene. Its very life is dependent upon others. But here in this case, God reaches down and tenderly cares for those who cannot care for themselves. And he says to them, live. What a glimpse of his saving love set into motion. And what comfort this is for those who have lost everything, even in the hurricane. Or through some other calamity in life. To know that God's love is available for all who will worship Him. And what joy there is in His sovereign, uninfluenced love. A love that He chooses to set upon the unloved. By the way, as a footnote, this is also a picture of sovereign election. Because all of us, before we came to Christ, were like the discarded infant in the field. You see, the Bible tells us that every sinner is utterly helpless to save himself. He is dead in his sin. He's spiritually blind. He's spiritually deaf. That's why Jesus said in John 1.13, We are born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. That's why Paul said in 2 Timothy 1.8, That God has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to His own purpose and grace which was granted us in Christ Jesus from all eternity. And even in Jude's epistle, Jude begins by addressing those who are the called, beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus. What a triumvirate here of divine grace. We are called, we are beloved, and we are kept. The word beloved in the original language, the grammar would indicate that we were loved In eternity past, through the present, and forever. Paul even tells us in Ephesians chapter 1 verse 4 that he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. 
in verse five, he said that he predestined propizo, which means to decide beforehand. He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself. Why? According to the kind intention of his will. And in verse 11, it says that we have been predestined according to his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his will. Dear friends, even in Katrina, many who died were those whom he has predestined as his sons. Many of them, I'm sure, were part of the elect. And it should bring great comfort to know that not one single person whom God has chosen to love will ever die unforgiven, unredeemed or unsaved. So as this nomadic group of Abraham's descendants grew into a fledgling nation, we go back to verse eight and we see that God passed by them. He says, I I passed by you and I saw you and behold, you were at the time for love. So I spread my skirt over you and covered your nakedness. I also swore to you and entered into a covenant with you so that you became mine, declares the Lord. In other words, he's saying when when you as a people were were no longer a child, I, I covered your nakedness. I spread my skirt over you, which which was an ancient Um, custom signifying a spousal to a marriage. So God here describes marrying Israel. He, he, He chooses them in his sovereignty. He takes them as his bride. And then he goes on with with vivid metaphorical imagery to to describe all the blessings that he showers upon his bride down through the course of their history. Uh, If you read those verses, you will see that. And certainly by the time of King David, Israel was a mighty kingdom, a trophy of God's grace that stunned the whole world. Notice in verse 14, then your fame went forth among the nations on account of your beauty, for it was perfect because of my splendor, which I bestowed on you, declares the Lord God. Indeed, we know that by the time of Solomon's kingdom, it was so glorious, it was so Majestic, so grand that the Queen of Sheba was speechless. Why? All because God chose to shower them with his undeserved love and blessing. But notice verse 15. But you trusted in your beauty and played the harlot because of your fame. And you poured out your harlotries on every passerby who might be willing. In other words, after all the blessings that I showered upon you. You go back and become enamored with the gods and the customs of the pagan people from which I called you. And we read that that Israel had built alliances with these people and began worshiping their gods, an act of spiritual harlotry. And again, I have to think of the parallel of the history of America, a country rooted in the Bible, rooted in great theology a country established by men who, for the most part, feared the God of the Bible. You know, there was once a time when the Supreme Court would would meet together and they would go to the word of God to understand how they should judge. Can you imagine that happening today? We were a nation and we are still a nation, frankly, blessed and preserved by God Yet, little by little, we can look throughout the history of America and we can see how our institutions gradually became apostate. We look at great institutions like Princeton and Yale and Harvard that were once bastions of biblical truth. And you look at them today and they are utterly anti-Bible, anti-God. We look at even many denominations that once loved God and preached With great boldness, the truth of the word of God. And today they have apostatized. You see Bible schools and you see seminaries that now teach things that aren't even remotely true to the word. And now even we look at our government and we continue to see our government allying itself with other countries around the world. Making alliances even with the United Nations, most of which are nations that hate The God of the Bible, they hate Christians and most of them hate America. Inconceivable. And so like gangrene 
the satanic lies began to affect and infect our country. And over the years, we can see how it first affected pastors and affected their pulpit. And then it would affect the churches and affect the families and then spread the metastasizing corruption of wickedness into our culture, into our society, into our government. Until now, I would submit to you humbly and with great remorse that our nation reeks with the stench of every imaginable abomination. We come back to Israel in verses 20 through 21, and he says, Moreover, you took your sons and daughters whom you had borne to me, and you sacrificed them to idols to be devoured. Were your harlotry so small a matter? You slaughtered my children and offered them up to idols by causing them to pass through the fire. You see, folks, under the delusion of self-deception and the satanic paganism that somehow enveloped them and consumed their hearts, They felt like it was important to sacrifice their children to some of these pagan gods. And what they would literally do is they would kill one of their infants and they would place that corpse on the fire to appease the pagan god Molech. Can you imagine anything more heinous than that? And they also thought that Molech would therefore be obligated to bless them. It is beyond the scope of human imagination to conceive of such atrocities and to think that it was all done in the name of religion. Oh, dear friends, the tragedy of self-deception. And even in our culture, we witness the devaluation of human life. We see children routinely abandoned and abused and millions of unwanted babies are aborted every year, sacrificed to the God of self and justified with the noble-sounding mantra of a woman's right to choose. We constantly hear phrases like, we need to terminate this pregnancy, which is nothing more than a euphemism for murder. Back to Israel in verse 22, God says, And besides all your abominations and harlotries, you did not remember the days of your youth, when you were naked and bare and squirming in your blood? And friends, again, it is a certain mark of human depravity to forget the Lord, our God, to rebel against his rule, to forget all of the blessings that he has brought our way and to violate his law. We have been told to love the Lord, our God, with all of our heart, mind, soul and strength and to love our neighbors as much as ourselves. And instead, we are prone to love the creature rather than the creator, to worship the God of self rather than the God of the Bible. This was the sad reality of ancient Israel. And it is the sad reality of modern America. So we witness the tragedy of self-deception that results in spiritual harlotry that gives birth to every imaginable abomination. And all of this leads, secondly, to the terror of divine judgment. Notice in verses 23 through 25, Then it came about after all your wickedness, Woe, woe to you. In other words, damnation upon you. Cursed are you, declares the Lord God, that you built yourself a shrine and made yourself a high place in every square. You built yourself a high place at the top of every street and made your beauty abominable. And you spread your legs to every passerby to multiply your harlotry. These high places, by the way, were places of pagan worship. They were worship centers. And if you read on, you will see that she played the harlot with the Egyptians in verse 26, with the Philistines in verse 27, with the Assyrians in verse 28, with the Chaldeans, or in other words, the Babylonians, even in verse 29. And if you read verses 32 through 34, you'll see that she wasn't even like a normal harlot that would that would charge for what she would do. But rather, she would pay lovers to come to her. You might note also, according to verse 47, Israel's wickedness exceeded that of Samaria and Sodom. And friends, I don't have time to go into their wickedness, but it was, again, unspeakable. Notice what it says in verse 47. You have not merely walked in their ways, in other words, in the ways of Samaria and Sodom, 
and done according to their abominations. But as if that were too little, you acted more corruptly in all your conduct than they. Again, here are these people, the recipients of divine favor, who have the history of supernatural blessing, the way God delivered them out of Egypt. They had the law. They had the prophets. These people should know better. And so God, being faithful to his holy character, pronounces judgment upon them. Verse 38, he says, thus, I shall judge you like women who commit adultery or shed blood are judged. And I shall bring on you the blood of wrath and jealousy. Beloved, I hope you can see the supreme value that God places on faithfulness and on holiness. And while America is by no means a theocracy like ancient Israel, and therefore many of the parallels would break down at that level. In fact, I would submit to you that America is not a Christian nation, certainly not by God's definition. Nevertheless, I believe that the principles here in this text would apply. Think of it this way. Any nation that embraces the wickedness of satanic religions and all religions other than Christianity are satanic. Any nation that embraces these types of pagan systems will ultimately be judged. The people will ultimately be judged because God will be true to his character, his holiness. Every sin must be punished. And as a nation, we throw our arms open to every religion, even those, as I say, that are committed to destroying us. And again, the only group worthy of discrimination is the Bible-believing fundamentalist Christian who refuses to embrace the doctrines of pluralism and political correctness. But may I remind you that we as Christians are called by God to come out from the midst of Christ's rejectors and be separate, according to 2 Corinthians six seventeen. In fact, in that text in verse 14, we are told... Do not be bound together with unbelievers. It's the idea of, of being unequally yoked. For what partnership have righteousness and lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? Beloved, again, may I remind you that we as Christians are not to engage in any form of paganism. Nor are we allowed to align ourselves with, with any spiritual enterprise that preaches another gospel or violates the word of God. This is why I am absolutely death on this ecumenical movement that violates that very principle. Well, as God promised, he judged them in 586 B.C. The Babylonians came in and absolutely massacred the people, plundered their cities. Again, these ancient Iraqis and folks, you can read even in some places in the Bible, but certainly in the history books and in the museums, especially the British Museum, you can read of the unimaginable torture that these people perpetrated upon God's chosen people. Atrocities that literally beg language. Oh, dear friends, the terror of divine judgment. But again, even in the midst of, the, of judgment, God's love is alive. He is still seeking and he is saving. Notice verse 60 of Ezekiel 16. Notice what it says here. Nevertheless, let's stop there. Oh, what a blessed word this is. Nevertheless, here is a word of undeserved mercy and grace. Available for all who will repent and trust in God's forgiveness through Christ. Nevertheless, he says, I will remember my covenant with you in the days of your youth. This, of course, is a reference to the Abrahamic covenant. And I will establish an everlasting covenant with you. This being a, a reference to the new covenant of grace, that unconditional covenant that demonstrates his eternal love and mercy and grace through Christ. Now, don't you find it interesting? One could ask, why didn't he treat the Sumerians the same way? Why, why didn't he treat the Sodomites the same way? I mean, after all, Israel was worse than them, the text tells us. Well, folks, the answer 
is very simple. God treated the Israelites the way he did simply because he determined to do so. Because God is not obligated to love everybody in the same way. He offers no other explanation. And dear friends, this leads me to the very third point that I would submit to you this morning. This is the triumph of sovereign love. For even in the great catastrophe of Babylonian judgment, he awakened many people to the reality of his love. And we see this in catastrophes all throughout the world, whether it's a tsunami, tornado, uh, 9-11, Katrina, whatever it, will, it is. We see how God uses these catastrophes to awaken rebellious souls whom he has chosen to love. And he utterly humiliates them with his forgiveness. We see this going on even today with Katrina. Notice how he did this with the Jews. Look in verse 61. Then you will remember your ways and be ashamed when you receive your sisters, both your older and your younger. And I will give them to you as daughters, but not because of your covenant. Thus, I will establish my covenant with you and you shall know that I am the Lord in order that you may remember and be ashamed and never open your mouth anymore because of your humiliation when I have forgiven you for all that you have done, the Lord God declares. And friends, all of us who have come to Christ can identify with this. When one day, because of the grace of God, because of the regenerating work of the Spirit of God, when He causes us in our spiritual death to somehow become alive and see the reality of our sin... And to see the forgiveness that is available to us in Christ. And suddenly we are humiliated when we are ashamed. And we recognize that we deserve nothing but the wrath of God. And yet what's available to us is grace because of Christ. Oh, what a joy it is to experience that miracle of the new birth. When we place our faith in the one and only Savior. Beloved, even in the tragedy of Katrina, God's purposes are being accomplished because, again, whomever he has chosen to love with a saving, eternal love, those people he will redeem. We can rest assured of that. And the rest are abandoned to the consequences of their own sinful, rebellious choices. Now, at this point, many people will cry out, unfair. What type of God is this that would love some and not others? Dear friends, what is unfair is that God would love any of us. Who are we to question the purposes of God? For indeed, our sins are far more heinous than we could ever imagine, especially in light of the inconceivable holiness of God. And now others will ask at this point, well, how do I know if I'm a part of the elect, if, if I'm one of the chosen ones? Oh, dear friends, and here I can present to you great news. The answer is simple. Do you believe that Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God? Do you believe, as Romans 10, 9 would say, that he is Lord that if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. Do you believe that? Do you believe that only the shed blood of Jesus could pay the penalty for your sins? Is that what you believe? Do you believe that he died for you and that he rose again on the third day? And that there is no other way to be reconciled to God apart from his grace through faith alone in Christ Jesus? Because if you believe that, you know what? You're part of the elect. You're part of the chosen ones. My friends, here is the bittersweet reality concerning those who were lost in Katrina. All who believed in him are today with him in paradise. And all who refuse to believe in him are in hell. 
But oh, what hope there is for all who survived. What hope there is. What a blessed hope there is. Because for them, there is still time to repent and be saved. They are still experiencing right now the temporal love of God. But all would that they believe and be recipients of his saving and eternal love. A love that will be lavished upon his own. The love of God that is eternal. When he loves them with all that he is capable of loving. No, dear child of God. Those of us who have been redeemed by the Lamb, who have been foreloved by His grace and His mercy alone, who have been predestined and called and justified, all of us who are trophies of His grace, let us echo the words of the psalmist in that great stanza when he said, His mercy endureth forever. My heart rejoices in the reality of His love for me. It is so undeserved, so unmerited. And may our lives reflect his glory and our hearts overflow with the doxologies of his praise. And may God help us to do this for his name's sake. And oh, unconverted hearers this morning, those of you who stand outside of his saving love, I plead with you as a minister of the gospel of Christ, to come to Jesus. I invite you today to come to Him while there is still time. To trust in Him as Savior. And enter into that inexpressible joy of His eternal love. Let's pray together. Father, we rejoice in what we have heard this morning. We thank You for the eternal truths of Your Word. We thank you for the infallible record that we can trust completely. And Lord, our hearts are heavy for those who have lost loved ones in this great catastrophe of Katrina. We pray that you will comfort them. We pray that you will convict those who are apart from your love, from your saving love. And Lord, we pray that you will save many through this catastrophe. For indeed, your Saving purposes have been concealed within it. Lord, may all of us who know and love you rejoice in that love and live it out that others may see it and long to have it. And may we be bold in the proclamation of the good news of the gospel of Christ. For it's in his name that I pray. Amen. We pray you've been edified by this presentation. You've been listening to pastor, Bible teacher, and author David Harrell. For more information or to order additional tapes or CDs of Pastor Harrell's messages, please visit cvctn.org or call 615-746-0113.